Shalom Aleichem from the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Josh Lambert. Today I'm in the studio with Professor Jules Chemetsky. Professor Chemetsky uh, is a professor of English Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the founder and co-editor of the Massachusetts Review. His many publications include the fiction of Abraham Kahn and our decentralized literature, cultural mediations in selected Jewish and Southern writers. His latest book is called Out of Brownsville, Encounters with Nobel Laureates and Other Jewish Writers, a Cultural Memoir. So welcome, Jules. I was thinking that uh, for anyone in our audience who, unlike me, hasn't been reading your work uh, uh, enthusiastically for many years, if you can say a little bit about how you came to be a critic of Jewish American literature. How did you find yourself uh, in your academic writing, uh, turning to writing about figures like Abe Kahn and, and, and others in Jewish American culture? Good question. I ask myself that frequently. I started out at the, in graduate school at the University of Minnesota and got my PhD in the Renaissance, did a dissertation on a minor contemporary of Shakespeare's. And my first teaching uh, job, uh, well, it was humanities at, at Minnesota and Boston University, where we taught the great books of the world. But my first real job in an English department was at the University of Massachusetts in 1958. And I taught metaphysical poetry at Elizabethan Championship. But a couple of years later, I think in 1960 or 59, I taught just because I was so impressed with the breakthrough of American, Jewish American writers, Bernard Malamud, the usual three, Saul Bellow, Malamud, Philip Roth. And so I gave a course, a fir- one of the first courses on Jewish American literature, in which uh, maybe three quarters of the class were not Jewish, they were just English students, and one of whom became the head of Irish studies at UMass Boston, and he looks back on it as the best course he ever had. <laughs> and uh, so I got into it. Basically, uh, it was through the back door. I had been teaching one semester of 17th century literature and one semester of American, but then when I was uh, abroad on a Fulbright in 1962, I got elected by the board at the Mass Review as a senior editor. And so I stopped teaching in the 17th century because I just couldn't keep up with two fields, so I was in modern literature. But, but as I said, the modern literature which began to appeal to me was Jewish American and, and, and African American. So ultimately I became, if I had any pioneering role in this world of literature, uh, I was a pioneer in multi-ethnic literature. In fact, I got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Multi-Ethnic Literature Society of America sometimes in the 1990s. But increasingly, and Kahn fascinated me and the uh, forward and its big influence on the acculturation of Jewish Americans, uh, the great immigration from Eastern Europe, and he was editor for 50 years. Had you grown up speaking Yiddish in your home and reading the foreword, or Well, we didn't read the foreword. My father was more author. He was not a socialist. (laughs) (laughs) He was a little businessman, and he read their tug, which was sort of the middle of the road and quasi-religious. But I had one uncle who read the Freiheit, who was a communist, although not a party, maybe he was a presser, and another uncle who was a reader of the Foet. So I was exposed to three papers in my growing up. Yiddish must have been my first language, but I don't remember it as such. 
because uh, by that time, my parents spoke it to each other almost exclusively until over the years they began to speak more English. Somebody told me about being high-wired in your brain before you're 10 with language. And about two years ago, I went to a Passover Seder where there was a huge bunch of uh, graduates from Swarthmore and elsewhere from all over the world in, Phil in uh, southern New Jersey and Philadelphia. And everybody was supposed to say the fear kashas, the four questions, in their own language. So we had Italian and Greek. I don't know what we had. And it was my turn, and I asked the fear kashas in Yiddish. <laughs> so it was buried there, right there. I was high-wired, and I hadn't done it in, you know, 60 years, 70 <laughs> years. In any case, uh, you, so the answer is yes or no. It was very much a part of my household. But I was also educated by the movies, by the school system, and by the streets of Brooklyn. So this this new book that you've just published uh, is a book of encounters over your long and fruitful career with literary celebrities, with great artists, great writers. Um, and I was curious if you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book and about some of the personalities who you wanted to describe uh, okay. when you sat That's down to do it. That's a good question. Um, I have to say at the beginning, it's not about all major figures in literature. There were, luckily and fortunately, I did get to meet a few. But I also have a lot of people who wouldn't be familiar in these days. This is, covers over 50 years. And by now, I mean, one of my impulses was to sort of rescue people who I thought were good and that I had met and whose work I knew from obscurity, from oblivion, from the memory hole that George Orwell talked about. And uh, so uh, probably 50% of the book will be unfamiliar to many of the newer generation of uh, readers, which I hope I get. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, it was, and the, 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 the it's people I actually physically met for, for, for a short, even for a, 10 minutes or for 10 months or 10 times. But it was a, a personal touch. I mean, there are writers that have influenced me whom I never really talked with ever, like uh, Roth, Philip Roth, the mailer, uh, whom I wrote about and admired and so forth, and Henry Roth. But uh, they're not in the book. It's only people that said something or I said or did something that opened up a, a vista for me that was illuminating. That, that, but how it got started... All right. Um, the Masters, I, I had retired from the Masters Review after 27 years of uh, being an editor in 2000, uh, 2002. And uh, at some point, they were doing a special issue on Grace Paley. So they asked me to do, if I wanted to do a piece. So I did a one-page one piece of admiration and appreciation for Paley. And my, one of my sons, who was an art historian, head of an art department in one of the universities, he liked it. He said, you know, you should write. He says, you met all these people. You should write these nice short pieces. Uh, he had a colleague who did that with artists she, she had known or met or encountered. He says, and uh, it became a big seller. <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, really? He said, I said, how many pieces do you need? He said, 50. I said, 50? Are you crazy? 
But then I started to think about all the writers I have in Kakos, all those years of being an editor and working in the Literary Magazine Association as an officer for several years. I started thinking about it. I stopped at 100. And that is, I, I got to narrow it down somehow. And then I thought, well, I've been teaching now Jewish-American literature for decades. I'll focus only on Jewish-American writers, although not all Jewish-American. I have a few Israelis and and I start counting, and I stopped at 50. And I said, well, I have to cut it down. So there are about 32, 33 pieces with cameo appearances here and there by others. That's that's how it got to it. Um, I could read the Grace Paley if you want. That would be great. Yeah, really? please, please read it. Yeah. Okay. It's short enough so that it won't uh, bore anybody. The obvious thing about Grace Paley's work and life is her radical intervention in the stream of American literature of the mid and late 20th century. Radical in language, subject, politics, she came on like an original blast of fresh air at the end of the formalist 50s, the almost entirely male-dominated literature of that period. I remember the pleasure well, the rapture even, of that voice when her short stories began appearing. There were the rhythms of New York speech, inflected with the Jewish rhythms and intonations of her upbringing and surroundings, alive with its snap, crackle, and pop, a bit of Clifford Odette, some of Saul Bellow, an anticipation of Philip Roth even, some Edna St. Vincent Millay and Emma Goldman in her sexual freedoms, but wholly original, her own, always a woman's voice, with its concerns about papa, mama, aunts, about the playgrounds of Brooklyn and the village and the young mothers of different races united in the haze of their glory and confusion about what comes next, the outrage that fueled their feminist politics and left positions, all that was grace. The first time I saw her, I thought she was a bag woman, the way she dressed, unconcerned about the niceties and expectations Though at a feminist press event in later years, I sat next to her and saw that she could manage a more conventional appearance. But that first image remains as a badge of honor in my book. It coexists with the first time I saw Dorothy Day <clears throat> in the home of Alan Tate and Carolyn Gordon around 1952 in Minneapolis. The Tates wanted Dorothy Day to talk about her religion Alan Tate had recently converted to Catholicism, but she insisted on talking about the gravediggers' strike then in progress in New York. She and her paper, The Catholic Worker, had taken the side courageously, as usual, of the strikers against the cardinal. She, too, dressed like a bag lady. She, too, spoke New York. She and Grace Paley occupy my private pantheon of sisterhood and sainthood. So that was the beginning. And that, that gives, I think, a great sense of the, the way you blend in these little pieces, criticism and personal appreciation and a sense of, a, of the time and place. Um, it, it's, it's really a, a wonderful book be, for precisely the reason that, that it is such a mix of figures, that you have um, 
figures who we've heard a lot about uh, and that we know well, especially listeners uh, of this podcast, uh, people who are who are fans of the Book Center, will know Irving Howe and Alfred Kazin and Norman Podhoretz, um, and also, of course, the Yiddish writers who you mentioned here, uh, like Kaja Molodowski and Isaac Pesheva Singer. Um, is there is there any other short piece from the book you'd want to read of a of a of well. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I just want to go on from there. When the Paley thing came, my son—that's when my son said, "Why don't you write fifty more or something?" And I thought that was crazy. But then I was teaching, of all things, Italian American literature and culture in Italy to Italian American high school teachers for about uh, ten days, and a friend of mine lived in this little town in the Marche and. Uh, when the Italian professor of Italian history left the apartment we shared, I had it all to myself. I opened the French doors and looked out at the at the Apennines and Abruzzi, and on my left was a field of rapé, like a Van Gogh painting, and on my right were two vineyards, and I had this whole apartment to myself and a big yellow pad, you know, a legal pad that I hadn't finished using from my lectures. And I just was happy, and the wind came in, the breeze, and I started to write. And I wrote on the three Nobel Prize winners I had met. Uh, that's why I called Nobel or Isaac Singer, Saul Bellow, Joe Bratsky. And I wrote those in a week. <laughs> they just came. It was very pleasurable. And then after that, the rest came, uh, as you say. Was it Was but, it any more difficult to write about figures who are uh, still alive to write sort of personal reminiscences about them. You know, obviously Grace yeah, Paley and, and Bashevis are, you know, are gone. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's a point. Um, yeah, but there were some people who were alive still, and I wrote about them, you know, Mark Mursky and, very, and Amos Oz and Shirley Kaufman and who went to Israel. And it was a good number, but yeah, it was. It, you had to be careful. I didn't want to hurt people's feelings and things like that, but I wanted to tell the truth, you know. And Normie Bonhurts and I grew up together in Brownsville, so I had a lot of truth to tell about him. And I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't hold back much. But in any case, um, if I were to read anything else, it would be the epilogue to the book. As I said earlier, uh, in the prologue, I said I wanted to save the people from the oblivion. And to and I, so at the end, a friend said, "Why don't you write an epilogue?" Please, uh, calling attention to the extraordinary times these people lived through and the faith they kept in sticking to their lasts. A good idea, especially since many of the writers and other thinkers and critics I encountered over fifty some years, and who left an impression upon me, are probably quite unknown to the present generation of readers even those politically, academically, and ethnically adept. As we are in the second decade of the 20th century, 21st century, I'm sorry, having survived one of the bloodiest, most murderous, yet culturally rich centuries in the history of the West, partially fulfilling and yet denying Spengler's forecast of its twilight, and the dark, malignant night of the eight years of Bush-Cheney, it is appropriate to raise a cheer for these artists and thinkers of that time. Recall that in the 20th century, two of the worst wars in history occurred. Hundreds of millions killed, maimed, gassed, burned, displaced. 
World Wars One and Two, the second against the most monstrous and inhumane regime ever known. An interminable other horrors among many of spilt blood, the Bolshevik Revolution and its consequences, the Spanish Civil War, fascism, Nazism, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, Israeli, Arab, and Palestinian wars, ethnic cleansing, closer to home, the Depression of the 30s, the McCarthy period, the pull upon many I have known and chronicled, however briefly, towards and repulsion against the Soviet Union and communism. Richard Nixon as a prelude to the Bush presidency, one of the worst in American history. Many, if not all of those I've written about have lived through some or most of these events and bore their imprint in their consciousnesses. In one of Philip Roth's Nathan Zuckerman novels, Zuckerman asked to go down to Florida to empty out his recently deceased mother's apartment. He comes upon a sewing kit and begins to go through it. At the very bottom is a slip of paper with a single word on it. Holocaust. I didn't know she knew the word, Nathan says. Yes, she did, as does every Jew, even the most assimilated, non-identifying. It's there somewhere in the recesses of one's consciousness or unconsciousness. This theme is true of any thinking person who went through the period of those other horrors as part on some level of their own histories and stories. I can go, there's only a couple more paragraphs. Should I, should I finish that? Or please, we, please, sure. Even as they tried to be true to art or their critical calling and not be overly tendentious, they kept writing, thinking, acting politically, or in less loaded terminology, were responsible to the realities of their time and condition. They tried to comprehend or countermand directly or obliquely these momentous events and their effects upon the irreducibly human. One might recall Allen Ginsberg's line during one of our wars, okay, Uncle Sam, I'll put my queer shoulder to the wheel. I like the implicit irony in that, as if to say you understand how ineffectual literary actions might be, how vulnerable and often marginal and suspect most artists may be as they sort the right word, sentence, line, image. Yet they will, ma will make the effort to address the issues at the time as those impinged on them. These acts are important to us all. However little effect they may seem to have had or the evanescence and loss of those efforts in the shrouds of history and forgetfulness, at least they should remind us that we're all in this together, whatever our age, politics, sex, or sexual preferences, race, and ethnicity. I think, too, so about something I mentioned briefly in the piece on Irving Howe. I admire the title of one of his books, Steady Work which is a reference to a Shalom Aleichem story about Chelm, the mythical East European Jewish town of fools. In the story, the narrator comes upon a tall tower at the edge of town in which the town beggar sits. What are you doing up there? I'm hired by the town to watch for the coming of the Messiah, the Mashiach, and yell out to them when it happens. What can they pay you for such a job? Not very much, but it's steady work. <laughs> and indeed, it is steady work work that many writers and critics I've encountered and dealt with were also doing and frequently for not very much earthly reward. I'll skip a couple of sentences. I even include people with whose politics and ideas I often disagreed and all those who kept going through bad times and good on the margin or very occasionally at the center of the literary world, all trying to transcend the sordid and the selfish the narcissistic 
as best they could, even in themselves. None of us is an angel. Let us praise them all, the famous and the infamous, those in this memoir and those many others not mentioned in these pages. To them, this modest work is dedicated. Amherst, 2012. Well, thank, thank you so much. It is, it is a, a, an amazing thing to see you reflect on uh, such a wide period, you know, a wider period than, than one would do in a, in a scholarly work or in a journal article. I, I'm curious if you could say a few words about, in this time, what you see as having changed in American Jewish culture. Obviously, so much has changed, but I wonder what the most salient features of the change seem to be to you. I mean, I'll mention that, you know, Irving Howe, who you've mentioned, you mentioned in that piece, very famously or infamously said in the mid-70s that as Jews, American Jews, uh, drifted further away from the experience of immigration, they yeah. would they would lose some of their connections to the wells of creativity. And I wonder if you've seen that happening or if you feel... Absolutely not. I mean, dear old Irving was chastised enough over that line. I think he probably regrets having made it because the literature is rich and full. It's been enriched by the Russian Jews who came over, you know, wonderful writers, uh, Gary Steingart, the, the woman Larissa who writes in The New Yorker. I mean... Canadian Jews, uh, South American who come up to America and work, uh, yeah, and the, and the third and fourth generation, they were looking for what to talk about and how to write. But you got Nathan England, they're in France, and you know you got a lot of guys, and women, yeah, very a lot of women, a lot of very good women writers. Cynthia Ozick keeps going from that old generation, and there are you know dozens of other very talented and wonderful. And they're trying to figure out what Jews have tried to figure out for millennia. You know, what's our role in the world? Who are we? How do we identify or not identify? And how do we fight each other but uh, retain our Jewishness? Uh, no, I don't think it's... I think it's, it's, it's a very rich literature right now. I mean, I've written about that. I've given talks about it, too. But that's not the subject of this book today. Mm-hmm. And maybe the next one, <laughs> right? Right, and what I I've heard you mention that there will be an, that there is another book that you're working on in some someone of the same style. Is that true? Not really the same style. I, I I've started a work called uh, My Political Life, under the radar and in left field, <laughs> but it's a narrative form, just from my earliest days when I was giving out leaflets for the Democratic Party candidate in Brownsville, Babidi Markowitz. She worked for the for the, uh, the only Jewish representative in the Congress at that time, Emanuel Seller. But uh, after about 20 pages, I got bored with it. I have to go. I'm thinking it through again, and I may go to the shorter form one hmm. more time. I think the narrative just becomes too familiarly um, autobiographical. But I, I, it loses that snap, crackle, and pop I talked mm-hmm. about. I like, and I think the short form suits me. Yeah. Can I ask you, is there, are there any writers writing today whose work you're reading who you'd like to be able to include in a book like this who you've never met but who you're sort of most, um, most excited about the prospect of meeting? Well, you know, Philip Roth just quit writing <laughs> at the age of 80. There's a wonderful interview with him. I, I never met him. I would love to meet Roth. And he's got time now, I think. And he's got time. But he, it sounds like he has good parties in Connecticut every weekend. <laughs> right. I'd like to be invited to that. <laughs> but the younger writers, I think I'd be interested to meet uh, Nathan Englander, uh, Steingart, 
the woman, the Russian Jewish writer who... Uh, Lara Vapniar, probably. What's yeah. her name? Lara Vapniar. Yeah, Lara Vapniar. Uh, the Russians interest me, um, and so on. Uh, there are many others I would like to encounter, as it were. There's uh, less chance now that I'm not editing the journal or teaching anymore, so not going abroad. Uh, I was on the circuit a lot. I went, to, I to, taught in seven different uni European universities, five five of them in German universities, which were very interesting. B Berlin, both on the west side and then on the east side when the wall came down. That's where I translated, uh, I did for my Kahn book in 1970-71, I was a guest professor at Berlin, Free University. I sat in a little room translating his five-volume memoir, Blätter von mein Leben, and all my Yiddish began to come back, but it's tinctured with German. Mm -hmm. So half my Yiddish is German and half my German is Yiddish. And uh, as Mark Twain said about his German, it's fluent but vile. <laughs> That's true of my Yiddish and my German. <laughs> so I don't go, I'm not, the last time I went was 2003. But uh, I don't want to teach anymore, so I don't try to get any of those nice jobs. And, uh, you know, I'll just ask you one last question. Do you, uh, as you, as you look out at the field of people studying American literature, studying, uh, ethnic American literature, uh, do you see, uh, positive signs of the field growing and, and Which field? developing? Ethnic literature or Jewish American? Uh, both. Yeah. Well, both is a good question because <clears throat> one of the impulses I had in returning to these things was, I think after the 70s, you know, after the Six-Day War and the 1973 war and all the things that were going on. And I remember go, one of the essays I talk about going out with Cynthia Ozick and Norma Rosen and uh, their husbands, and uh, we we were dressed like Russians. I thought that was fur hat. Something had happened, uh, so we were all turning back to Yiddish. I think it was uh, post the ethnic revival of the 60s and 70s, uh, Jewish American literature was being left out. We would think they were being considered Europeans and white Europeans. So my impulse then was always to say, as was the others, we're mm -hmm. here, we remain, and we want to, we want to be included. Uh, that was one impulse of mine, and uh, I think of the others at that period. Hmm. So there was a resurgence, and I helped start the Judaic Studies program at UMass with uh, but several other people, and they sprouted like mushrooms after a while because people felt we needed to make our presence known and not be uh, elided from history. And that, but also not ghettoized. That's the other problem. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's why my, I move and I say in my book, I have a you know, cameo appearance of John Berryman and Jimmy Baldwin, who I like very much when he taught at UMass and at the five colleges in this area. <clears throat> As after all, I've known a lot of writers who weren't Jewish and whose work I admire and, and fed off, and I taught humanities for years, and the great classics of... Western and Eastern literature. Well, I, I think it's an amazing accomplishment, this book, in that it's it's so charming and so approachable, but it gives you stories and insights into who these people were and to what 
what the making of literature was like, you know, in these periods. It's something that's harder for scholars and historians to capture without those sort of first-person accounts. So I, I, I thank you for it, and I think it's a wonderful book, and I hope many people will uh, uh, Josh, will I appreciate it. you saying all that. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jules, for, for talking to us today. Uh, I should say that copies of uh, Out of Brownsville can be found in the Yiddish Book Center's bookstore, both here in Amherst and online. And uh, we we hope many of you will have a chance Amazon. to read it, com. and of course, and of course, ev- everywhere else where where and, where books are and, sold, and the uh, Amherst Bookshop in Amherst, and the Broadside in Northampton, right? <laughs> where of I course. gave readings, and they sold out <laughs> in the high two figures. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for speaking to me today, Jules Chemetsky. Uh, you've been listening to a podcast from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit yiddishbookcenter.org audio. Our producer is Agnieszka Ilwika. I'm Josh Lambert. Zymir Stark and Gesund. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon.